Before we get to this week's episode, I want to highlight a few things we're working on over at Schaefer's. Our weekend trader subscription service is having a sale. That's the same service we're about to talk about that doubled subscribers' money with a square call option. They're offering a buy one year, get the next year free deal. That's $199 for two years of trades that have net over $20,000 in profits. So you'd receive one trade every Sunday evening at 7 p.m. Eastern time every weekend, each set two target gains of 100% to 200% or more. Click the link in this episode's bio to gain access for two years for a fraction of the price. Now, Todd Salamone, Schaefer's VP of Research on the mechanics of his winning square call option trade. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Schaefer's Market Mashup. Patrick Martin here, August 17th. With another esteemed in-house guest, please welcome on the show for the first time, Schaefer's Senior VP of Research, Todd Salamone. Todd, thanks for coming on. How you doing? Doing great, and thank you for having me, Patrick. All right, all right. Todd, uh, if you guys are not familiar, he writes Schaefer's Monday Morning Outlook as well. He's here to run through the highlights of a successful square, ticker SQ, options trade. He closed out early in August. You know, as we do with these post-mortems, we're going to hit the film room, uh, kind of see what he saw, dig into his mind a little bit in regards to how he manages trades. But first, you know, he's a first-timer on the pod here, also celebrating a huge 38-year anniversary here at Schaefer's. 28 years. 28 years. 28 years. Ah, I threw you an extra decade there. Before you know it, it'll be 38. There you go. Yeah. And then the next thing you know, it's going to be 50. But um, That's right. So... I guess let's start and talk to everyone about your background, your trading background, and how you came to Schaefer's. Okay. Uh, well, uh, you know, first I would, uh, went to the, uh, the Ohio State University in Columbus, Ohio, uh, and it is there that I double majored in finance, and I, and I emphasized a lot of investing classes. I, we actually managed uh, part of our endowment portfolio, a real uh, portfolio is part of one class. So I've always had an interest in the stock market. Uh, so I, I took finance and then I also double majored in, in insurance and risk management. And, uh, you know, it's, I didn't realize it at the time that going into what I was going to do ultimately over these next 20 years after graduating from Ohio State as Schaefer's Investment Research was my first job out of college that I would be working with options. And if you think about it, not only are options a speculative tool, but they are a risk management tool. So uh, my double major at Ohio State was very uh, pertinent to what I do now, uh, these 28 years later. Yeah, it seems like your education, you were tailor-made for this uh, for this fit. Um, kind of in the same way that Justin Fields seems like he's tailor-made for the Bears offense. Exactly. So... Um, Okay, well, and, and what I find fascinating about that is you, know, you were entering at a time when options weren't nearly as popular as they were now, so you have been really in on the ground floor for this huge burst in popularity in the past. Oh, oh yes, yeah, I was thinking about that the other day. When I came in, I think Bernie had been in roughly into this business coming from the actuarial business. 
uh, from about for about ten years. So Barney was in it for about ten years before I came, and you know, you think about it, he was really in the groundwork. But you know, I've seen the options evolve uh, anywhere from you know, it used to be they were singly listed. Uh, you know, something traded on the Chicago Board Options Exchange, and that only. And around that time, there were only about four or five option exchanges. Now there are too many to count on one hand as far as number of options exchanges, and uh, you know they're not singly listed; they're multiply listed, uh, except for one, and that's uh, I think the SPX options, which the SIBO owns and maintains. But uh, so you've got the uh, you've got singly listed versus multiply listed, which is great for the retail. Uh, uh, or anyone, because now there's more competition for to, to generate volume. And where there's competition, there's better pricing. Uh, and you've got different types of options now, weekly options, which were not available back when uh, when I first came in this business. So, uh, yes, uh, options have evolved. You've, you've had uh, the exchange-traded funds, and with that, you've had options on exchange-traded funds, uh, uh, giving, giving investors a hedging tool or a way to play a sector. So, uh, yes, it's the, the options market itself has evolved. And with that, uh, tremendous, tremendous growth. Yeah. I've been very fortunate considering I've only been around for four odd years to have a lot of these guests on that have really taken me to school, uh, including a lot of the SIBO guests and, and guys like you and Chris Pribel who have really kind of brought me up to speed as to how things have changed in the past, you know, 20 odd years. Let's roll to the highlights here. Uh, you entered this square position uh, on June 13th, it looks like, and you closed it out on August 8th. So in less than two months, you doubled subscribers' value. Uh, walk me through your thought process, both before, during, and after the trade. I'll give it for you. It's kind of interesting, and I'll be honest, this was an unusual trade as far as how it developed. You know, I'm one that uses a lot of screens. Uh, you know, I, I make some observations. I get with our quantitative analyst guys uh, after a series of observations and we develop screens so that I have better awareness of those exact patterns and maybe emerging that I'm seeing working. But in, to an extent, uh, I think this, this trade actually evolved because uh, I, uh, back in May, June at first. Uh, it was it was around mid-May. I noticed first that Square was extremely correlated with Bitcoin. As Bitcoin rose, so did Square. As Bitcoin went down, so did Square. And uh, I think it was around May or so that Bitcoin went into negative territory here to date. And so I was actually, from a technical perspective, thinking to myself, wow, here's a tech stock, negative territory, markets higher overall, uh, you know, this could be a potentially better situation developing. And uh, so, you know, I just start following it. And I'm, you know, as a trader, I don't ever just put something on my radar and trade it that day. I want to get a feel for different things, you know, whether it evolves from a screen or what have you. But in this case, a lot of it was anecdotes and headlines. You know, you had to... Back in early May, you know, mid-May, the Bank of England dollar Andrew Bailey saying, uh, buy crypto if you're prepared to lose all your money. And then crypto and Bitcoin were not behaving so great. And then around mid-June, JP Morgan came out with a 
bearish forecast. They were noting backwardation in the Bitcoin futures market back in 2018. How something similar happened. Bitcoin went into the, a bear market during uh, based during that backwardation in the futures market. Uh, you had forecasts for $20,000 Bitcoin. And again, just to give you some, some background on this, I've seen in the past where after a trend is in motion and then all these forecasts come out with extremes, in this case, I think Bitcoin may have been at 35, 36,000. Mm-hmm. Now you got predictions for 20,000 after it already declined, you know, by, I think it may have been 50% or so. Uh, sometimes when those extreme forecasts come in, it, it usually marks a bottom or a near bottom. So that was getting on my radar. Uh, just other examples where I've seen that Tesla at its top analysts were coming in, and this was a few years ago, saying that it, uh, with these huge bullish forecasts, and then when it went through a funk, all of a sudden all these extreme bearish forecasts came in. Same with the S&P when it bottomed in 2009. 0809, a huge bearish forecast after it already gone down some 50%. So it's not often you see that, but I saw that. And because I was watching Square, I was paying attention to these forecasts. And now, but in the midst of these forecasts, I'm thinking to myself, I'm watching Square and I'm looking at a monthly chart and I'm like, you know, this isn't so bad. It's it's pulled back a lot, but it's still 100% up 100% year over year. Mm-hmm. It's even amidst all these bearish forecasts, it's holding this round 200 level, which was actually double its 18 peak before. So the shares had peaked around 100, 100 or so in 18, uh, fell back all the way to like 40 or 50, I believe it was. And it wasn't until June of 20 that it broke out above that 100 level. So I'm, you know, and I thought I found it interesting that now it's holding 200, even though everybody is saying that Bitcoin is going to go down. And with that, I'd say it was an implied forecast that Square would go right with it. But amidst all that, Square was holding this 200 level. And if you think about it, those that bought that breakout in June of 20 above 100, mm-hmm. they had doubled their money. So the fact that it was holding there was telling me, you know. Uh, there's not a lot of sellers here right now, so my right there, I'm saying maybe I'm maybe I'm way too late in this bearishness on Square, and then it was around uh, mid June, you know. So I'm thinking to myself maybe this is a bullish play. So it was around mid June, uh, you know. I had noticed, you know, one, uh, I was looking for some type of bulls, pulse to the upside. Okay. You've got all these seemingly bearish headlines. It's holding a level, but it's got to show me a little more. So around mid-June, it broke back above the 217, 217 level, which was its December 20, 2020 close. So it, it was a year-end close last year, broke back into positive territory, and then it also broke above a trend line connecting lower highs that were in place since April. So... Now it's showing me a little bit of pulse amid all this bearishness. And then if you look at the sentiment, I had noticed short interest was still pretty significant. Mm-hmm. It was 8% afloat. And I, I'm not one to just say, okay, 8% of uh, short, 8% afloat, that's high short interest. I'm looking at it in terms, I'm looking at a graph of short interest. 
And I'm noticing even amid this pullback that Square had been in, the shorts were still losing money. And now their their chance to cover was was probably imminent because now it had gone down to 200. It had held a key level. Now it's breaking out above a trend line. It's back into positive territory. Maybe the shorts will cover. Um, I had also noticed, too, that the, 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 the shares were trading around a big put open interest. And, uh, and I looked at a graph in, in, that quantifies puts relative to calls uh, with this stock at strikes in the immediate vicinity of the stock. And what that generated was a high gamma swarm. I looked historically and noticed that Square, whenever it's trading around big put open interest strikes, it tends to rally. And that made sense to me because a lot of that put open interest, when buyer generated, the floor who sold those puts to the put buyers are are taking are, are short the stock to hedge. But if the stock rebounds off this put open interest, they will take those short positions off, and especially as expiration year. So, so that that to me was telling me not only is this technically looking better, but there could be some short covering in the very near future. So, long story short, that's how something that got on my radar as a potential bearish play became a bullish play that ultimately uh, doubled in price. Back then, we. Uh, recommended the 17 in our weekend trader series which comes out on sunday nights it's a new rec that comes out every sunday evening we recommended the uh september 17 210 strike call uh at the time square was trading at 219.34 you know a couple points above that here they break even mm-hmm. and uh we ultimately closed that at, at a double yeah which was our target that's out- i mean that's outstanding what I liked about your thought process there is that you looked at a lot of indicators that people are familiar with, like the short interest and the round numbers, but you also ran it through a lot of – like you, you, you looked at the, po- the put open interest as almost underscoring the, the, the short interest. Yes, yeah, so it was almost telling me not only is this a highly shorted stock, but this is when, – when, when, when an underlying stock is highly shorted – Yes, there's that potential for shortcoming, but as an option trader versus a stock investor, it's pretty important for me, given options have a finite life, and I am fighting that time decay that comes with buying options that not only do I got to know that it's highly shorted, but I got to have a very good reason to believe that these shorts are going to come in and cover, whether it's technically driven or whether it's related to uh the, the outstanding the, the open interest configuration, which is the put open interest, call open interest, and knowing that, okay, there's some puts that are about to expire. They're around the immediate vicinity of the stock, and as long as it remains above those the, the big put strikes, mm-hmm. there's going to be some short covering associated with the expiration of these options. Right. And you, know, you mentioned a lot of indicators that you know, I'm familiar with a lot of your writing, so I understand – Stuff like, you know, 100% year over year, uh, the 200 round number levels, trend line connecting higher highs or, or lower lows. Are there other indicators that you find yourself coming back to more often than others? I know in your commentary, you talked about the 200-day moving average. Uh, you know, what are your kind of, what your fallback indicators? Or does, it, or does it depend on the trade? 
The latter, Patrick. It depends on the trade. And when I when I've been around doing these money shows, where uh, uh, which is an educational uh, um, these seminars that, that we've done, we've gone to San Francisco, Las Vegas, uh, different cities. Nice. Money show puts these on. I one of my presentations, I always emphasize the fact that when you're trading options. You know, the, the good with them is there's so much flexibility. Uh, you know, I mentioned weekly options. You, if, if your outlook is over this next, through this coming Friday or a couple weeks from now, you can play an option on that. Or it could be a few months from now. But the problem with is with when there are so many options, it can be confusing. And the way I tell uh, those that I'm speaking to, is I emphasize the point that you've got to align your indicators with your time frame. So, you know, ironically, we were just talking about Square. Not only did I have a long-term, re- you know, reasoning to put on this trade, I also, in our weekly option trader alert service, I also had an option call option I, that I put on as well. And, and usually, again, aligning the, the indicator to the time frame because um, – I felt that there was a lot of put open interest on that stock that was, or not felt that I knew there was a lot of put open interest in this stock. And I knew there were short positions tied to that, that were going to have to be unwound in a short period. I put out a recommendation to our, uh, our alert subscribers that trade a shorter time frame to buy square calls. But uh, I also thought that it fit that longer term time frame because it was, it was, Holding a, a moving average, that 200-day, but when something's trading down at a 200-day moving average, I also know that sometimes it it may take time for the move to develop. Is it come? Is it works its way out of that uh, out of that trough, okay. and it may take some time to develop. So, uh, in, especially when I'm using anecdotal type sentiment measures, like I. All those headlines coming out of those bearish forecasts. Yeah. Um, sometimes that'll take time as well. So aligning the indicator with the time frame, especially in the options market where you can be, play short-term and longer-term options. And then back to that 200-day, to be quite honest with you, I'm not a huge fan of using the 200-day moving average. Mm-hmm. I noticed in this trade that it was supportive. So, uh, But that round 200 level was also there. That it was coming off of, um, I I had noticed it had just taken out a round number multiple of its IPO. I think it was like seventeen times the IPO price. So I'm putting I'm bringing other things into the mix uh, that that give me an edge. I feel, but uh, to be quite honest with you, I, I will some we one screen that we have is stocks that are around the unpopular moving average, like an 80-day moving average. Mm-hmm. And how has that stock performed in the historical past after it's traded above that moving average and is pulling back to within one standard deviation of it? Why do we look at an 80-day? Well, a lot of everybody looks at the 50-day. As a contrarian, if it breaks the 50-day, a lot of people probably get washed out of that trade. I don't want to get into a real crowded trade. And if the 80-day moving average has shown historical significance, that's something I feel I know that a lot of other people that I'm trading against do not know. And I think that comes back to having a trading edge. What is your edge? What is it that you know about this stock 
then most or no one knows about it. And uh, that is so very important. In fact, at Schaefer's, every time we put out a new trade recommendation to subscribers, we send an internal email to the rest of the traders saying why we did that. And there always has to be one or two things about the options backdrop or the, the stock backdrop that we know that most others don't know about that trade. That doesn't mean it's going to be a winning trade, but it's an edge that uh, we feel we have over the other the people playing either the options market or the stock market itself. Yeah, that's a very excellent point uh, when you brought up the, the, the different moving averages like the 80. Um, in, in a similar vein, retail traders will probably see, you know, if they're on our site, they'll look at the, the bid asking, the bid ask pricing or the spread there. That's something that could be confusing to them. When you're sitting there looking through this trade and you're looking through all, all of everything we just talked about, are you also there monitoring these bid ask prices as as far as getting the most value out of this? Yes, and, and that's that's especially important for us, knowing that we're moving a number of subscribers in and out of trades. But even if even if it's just a single subscriber, you know, the, the bid ask is basically what what the market's saying. You could sell it at this price, or you and then the ask price is what you can buy it for. And the wider it is, say it's 10 by 12, 10 bid offer 12, that's pretty wide. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to buy it at 12 and turn around and sell it at 10, that's $2, what we call slippage right off the bat. That's not really a good situation. So we're typically looking for situations where the bid ask is not that wide, or we feel that there's enough volume on the stock that we think that will tighten once there's some volume. So that comes with experience, that comes with expertise to kind of know how deep the market is on a particular stock. But, you know, as a retail trader, if you're doing recommendations by yourself and you see a wide bid ask, don't ever, you know, when you put put a limit order in and kind of test the market, if it's bid 10, ask 12, maybe try to buy it for 1080 or 1070, you know, and, and then see what the, see if they'll give that to you. And then can't, if that doesn't work, cancel the order and maybe put in a little higher price. So it's a very good question, Patrick. Uh, here at Schaefer's, we, we do look at it. Uh, and we've we there have been situations where we do not do a trade because we don't think the liquidity mm-hmm. is good enough. But even if you're doing things on your own, I can't stress enough that that just because the bid the the, mar- the market showing a bid and an offer, you may be able to get in at what we call the mid, somewhere between that bid ask, and that's something you should try to do because over one trade, yes, it may not matter that much, but over several trades, if you can get a better pr- uh, price, you know you're you're going to you've got you're going to have better bottom line results overall. Right. Right, I think that's very important for them to understand. Uh, thank you for, for clearing that up. I um, want to take a step back and go a little broader here with kind of a two-parter. Uh, regarding you know, Square, you talked about Bitcoin, which I'm really glad you were because I was going to bring that up if you didn't. Uh, in the, just the tech space in general, are there any macro trends that you're noticing now? Uh, you know, As we're heading into the fall, You know, we've got the Fed meeting coming up. And just what are you seeing right now? Yeah, on the, on the macro, yes, I think all eyes are going to be on the Fed. Yeah, that, um, Powell talking today, and then uh, at the end of next week, you've got the Jackson Hole. And uh, 
not, I'm not saying the Fed is going to make an announcement on a strategic shift, but these are Jackson Hole's where they tend to occur. It was last year, if you remember, that they made a commitment to lower rates. Mm-hmm. You know, it's going, uh, basically saying it's in order to raise rates, it's going to take a lot more than it may have been in the historical past. Uh, so, you know, there's a lot of macro trends going on. Right? You know, I, I'd say if you're following the Fed and you think they're going to impact the market, pay attention to the voting members. You know, uh, the, the Federal Reserve Board is made up of a lot of governors, but only about five. You've got, you've got the standard, you've got Powell that gets a vote, of course, and the mm-hmm. vice chair that gets a vote all the time. Then there's rotating governors. So whenever I hear a Fed governor uh, make a comment on whether there's going to be tapering or when they should lift rates, I look and see who's voting now and who's going to be voting in 2022 because those are those are the voters and their comments are more relevant than those that are on the Federal Reserve Board and don't have a vote. And you can go to the Federal Reserve site and see who the voting members are. Um, and I, I think the, I think the, the Fed will impact stocks. Uh, another macro trend is you know just this whole COVID variant. Uh, even though it, it's in the headlines every day, and we, we were on this, call it uh, phase four of all these cases, uh, a lot of these stay-at-home technology stocks really aren't doing anything. The teledocs and the Zoom videos. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's something to pay attention to, especially in the tech world. Uh, you know, it's so bifurcated. You know, some of these stocks like the Oracles and the Apples tend to do well when their interest rates are moving lower as, they, as they've been. But uh um, I, you know, I, I think the Fed is something to watch over these next few weeks, especially from the trader's perspective. Yeah, I, you make a really good point about checking and see who actually has a little more heft to, to their comments. Um, so on, on a wrap-up note here, uh, I, I want to talk about kind of your trade management philosophy here. Do you have any parting wisdom you'd like to give to our listeners as far as Getting started, you know, sticking to a process, like you said, finding an edge. You alluded to it before, but I'll give you one last chance to yeah. talk about it. Well, yes, and, and, and again, I'm going to talk purely from an options trader. And I mentioned before uh, timing and aligning indicators, and that's because options have a finite life. And as an option buyer, I'm fighting that time decay. So. First and foremost, no matter how experienced you are, no matter how good you think you are, your win rate when you're buying options is going to be less than 50%. And that's tough for people to handle, Mm -hmm. Uh, especially those that are well-educated and did well in school. Because if you're you're taking a test and you're right less than 50% of the time, you're not moving on. Oh, you're screwed. Uh, and that's tough and for people to grasp. And, and let's face it, we are all human beings. We hate being wrong. And uh, the reality is, as an option buyer, because you have a finite life, you can't buy a stock and hold it on for the next 50 years, and uh, and you got that time, time decay, your win rate will be less than 50%. If you can't live with that, you shouldn't be buying options. Now, does that mean you're going to lose money because your win rate's less than 50%? Absolutely not. No, hell no. And I'd welcome any of you guys, any of you listeners to call in if you're interested 
in uh, buying some of subscribing to our newsletters that offer recommendations to ask for a track record and you'll see some great returns but you'll also see more losing trades and winning trades so how does that happen our average win is going to be bigger than our average loss and that goes back to the age-old maxim and i'm sure you've heard it before and i've heard it uh, i'm exaggerating a million times since i've become a trader you got to let your profits run and cut your losses short. So I know that when I lose, I'm going to lose on average probably 40 to 50, maybe take a 60% loss on a trade. Mm-hmm. So in order for me to be profitable, I cannot be taking profits at 70 and 80%, no matter how uh, tempting that is. I'm at least shoot every time I put on a trade. If I don't think that option can produce a 100% return or better, I'm not going to do the trade, and I'm going to be disciplined to stay in for that profit. Options, the beauty of options is you can only lose what you put in the trade, but your maximum profit potential when you're buying them is unlimited. So, if, again, if you look at our average win rate on some of our products, some of them are more than 100%. Mm-hmm. And that's not because we're cutting, we're taking profits right away at 20 and 30%, right. no matter how tempting it is. We're letting our profits run, and generally what we do in some services is if it gets to 100% or more, we might tell our subscribers to close half the position and see if that other half can run. At the very least, the worst case possible, we're going to have a break even on the trade. If we close that first half above 100%, we will have a profit on that trade no matter how the second half turns out. But a lot of times, we might close one half out at 120% and second half out. At 200%, resulting in 160% profit. But again, we made the next two or three trades might be losers. And if they're 40% 40 or so, we still got an overall gain. So, you know, again, if you're going to be buying options, know your win rate is going to be less than 50%. But know, so now the question becomes how am I going to make money bottom line over a huge number of trades over the next year? You're going to do that because your average win is going to be a lot more than your average loss. And and if you go into options trading, options buying specifically with that philosophy, you will do well, do well, assuming you have some edge over the options market, which I believe we have because we've got a lot of tools such as the volatility scorecard that tells us what options, what underlying stocks have typically been good for option buyers. And these are tools that we rely on. And right now with our screen screens that we think give us an edge over other market participants in the stock market and over option buyers uh, in the options market. Yeah, very well said. I'm really glad you brought up the ability to close, you know, half a position and close out the final portion later. I mean, that's very well said. Honestly, you should... You can probably moonlight as a motivational speaker too, because I'm sure this is going to get people amped up. Uh, Schaefer's senior VP of research, Todd Salamone. Thank you again for coming on, Todd. I'll I'll give you one last question. How many wins for the Buckeyes this year? Let's uh, let's say at least double digits. Be yeah. on the safe side. Yeah. Okay. But, but let's go. Let, let's just hope undefeated. Okay. There you go. You heard it here first. But again, Todd, thanks for coming on. I, your, your insight is just uh, incredible. Uh, you've, it's great to have you on. Hopefully we can get you back on 
because I feel like we just scratched the surface here, and it was a lot of fun, you know, listen, yeah, listening. It was, it was a lot of fun, Patrick. Thanks for having me. Great questions, and, uh, you know, uh, great setup. So it was your setup questions that allow me to impart my wisdom. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Cheers, Todd. Yep, cheers to you. Thank you. If you enjoyed that episode, don't forget to subscribe to Todd's Monday Morning Outlook, delivered to inboxes every, you guessed it, Monday morning. It offers up an amazingly insightful macro look at the week ahead, index levels to watch, open interest configurations, much more. Hit the link in the episode bio to sign up.